As you're taking your seat, um, you can go ahead and open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to begin by reading the text this morning. So uh, I'll give you a moment to find your way there. And we've been studying through um, the book of 1 Peter. And uh, there's so much, so much to be found in this book that is so helpful for us as followers of Jesus Christ who are trying to follow Jesus Christ in a world that is so often opposed to our faith, in a world that is tempting us to steer away from our faith. And Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is constantly calling us back to what is central, calling us back to what it means to live a life in this world for Jesus Christ. He begins in verse 13 by saying this, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Here at the very center of this passage is a call for us to have no fear nor to be troubled. That's the primary emphasis that Peter is driving through these few verses in front of us. It really is the epicenter of this little paragraph. He's calling us, in essence, to have a kind of fearless Christianity, to not be afraid of the world around us that so often not only despises our faith and despises our Savior, but oppresses us because of our relationship to Him. That is, in many ways, the very heart of everything Peter has been saying in the context in which Peter is writing. He's writing to churches that have been scattered because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They're experiencing a degree of oppression and persecution. It's most likely at this point not statewide. It's not some kind of a systemic persecution. It's more in the realm of social ostracization. They're being mocked. They're being ridiculed. They're being reviled. And in many ways, Peter is preparing them to not only endure what they're experiencing, but to realize that this is par for the course as followers of Jesus Christ. And in many ways, what they're experiencing is not nearly as bad as it could be, and for many believers, not nearly as bad as it will be. Peter is, in in many ways, the perfect person to teach us about what it means to be fearless in our Christian faith. He gives us the secret of fearless Christianity as someone who is founded after failure. If you know anything about the story of Peter, you may remember the time that he was waiting in the courtyard of the high priest's house while Christ was being examined right before his crucifixion. In that moment, Peter had failed miserably. Jesus had told him it was going to be that way. He told him before the rooster crows, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter swore to the Lord that that would not happen, that he would never deny Jesus Christ. 
Peter believed he could be fearless in the face of all kinds of opposition, and yet, when faced with it, he crumbled. Rembrandt, the famous artist, he captures this scene in a famous painting of his. And in this painting, Peter has just denied Christ for the third time, swearing with oaths that he was no disciple of Christ, he was not with him, he did not even know him, and in the background shadow in this painting stands Jesus Christ. And Rembrandt captures the moment in Luke where it says Jesus, and the moment he denied Christ for the third time, Jesus turns and locks eyes with Peter. Peter is concerned that when we are faced with pressure like this and oppression from the world and persecution even from the world that we don't make the same mistake that he did. And he comes alongside us as one who knows our our weakness and our frailty, as one who has failed in this area of his own life. He comes to us with personal experience as well as inspired revelation from God himself. He comes with sympathy, but he also comes with conviction. Knowing what it's like to be driven by the fear of man, Peter prepares the church not simply to endure persecution, but to find in persecution an opportunity to be a witness to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he calls us, the church of Jesus Christ, to have no fear when it comes to our Christian faith and our Christian convictions, to be fearless Christians. He says this to us, first of all, have no fear, your soul is is safe, so eagerly please Christ. He anchors our souls in the truth of the gospel. In fact, the very first word reminds us of this broader context. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? He, He links this thought right back to the previous section. If you were here last week, we saw that Peter, he quotes from Psalm 34. And in Psalm 34, David is is suffering unjustly. He's suffering oppression, he's suffering persecution, and there we get a glimpse of how uh, David himself endured. Here Peter picks up where he left off in talking about those who, who faithfully follow the Lord, who do good, who pursue the things of the Lord, who desire to obey God, who please the Lord. He keeps this line of thinking going. And the idea is this, that the Lord will look with favor. The Lord will bless those who are righteous, those who do good. But in contrast to that, as we saw last week, he actually sets his face against those who practice evil. He opposes those who in their pride reject God, who will not embrace the Lord God Almighty, but who instead live um, independently, autonomously, who live as their own king. He's speaking here this kind of blessing idea of, of final judgment mainly. He's he's calling believers to remember, listen, that regardless what you face in this life, there's a blessing that awaits you. You can be sure about the state and condition of your soul if you are faithfully pleasing Jesus Christ throughout your life, if you know that you live for him. And so Peter asks this rhetorical question, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? 
It's not that people won't harm you, by the way. That's not the idea here. It's clearly not the idea. The people who Peter is writing to are actually suffering in many ways because they are doing good, because they're following Jesus. It's synonymous with being righteous and doing good. You're a follower of Jesus Christ, and your life is displaying that. Your good behavior is evidencing your faith in Jesus. No, Peter is saying that no one will be able to harm you, listen, on that final day of judgment. In other words, you may follow Jesus now and you may suffer for it, but when push comes to shove, at the end of the day, at the end of your life, when you stand before Jesus, your soul is safe. It doesn't matter what they do to you in this life because you know what God has told you about your future. Your soul, that, the part of you that will live on forever, that will outlive your current, your present physical body, the part of you that will exist in either the eternal presence of God's divine blessing or it will exist in the presence of God's judgment. He says to those who are faithful to the Lord that your soul is safe. Now again, Psalm 34 is the backdrop here, and if you were to look closely at that psalm, it really serves as, as the perfect picture and reminder and illustration of what God is actually saying to us. That psalm ha has this kind of constant back and forth between the blessings that are promised to the people of God and the idea of, of fear that can often exist in the life of a believer. In fact, five times, the word fear is mentioned in Psalm 34. Just listen as I read this. In verse 4, it says this, I sought the Lord and he answered me, and listen to this, and delivered me from all my fears. Verse 7 says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Verse 9 says, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Verse 11 says, come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The emphasis throughout this psalm is actually on fear and on the proper fear that we are to have. You see, the one who fears the Lord will be delivered from all his other fears, all his earthly fears. The one who fears the Lord has no need to actually be afraid of anything in this life. He will be protected and safe. David knows the fear of God because, listen, this is so important, he knows the love of God. The fear of God is, is such a, an, an interesting concept to consider, and, and here, the fear of God is not to be this kind of trembling, and we're not supposed to be scared of God. This is an awe of God, an adoration of God that is birthed out of an understanding of the love of God. You see, David knows that God loves him so much as his child that his life is so safe and secure, nothing can shake that. No matter what this world throws at him, he is held tightly in the loving arms of God. And because God loves him like this, you see, David is teaching us and Peter is teaching us that we ought to live now in fear of him, longing to eagerly and zealously please him. Because of his love for us, we want to live in love for him. This is what salvation does for the believer. 
Salvation doesn't produce a, a, an unhealthy fear of God in the life of the believer. It produces a healthy fear of God that is founded upon the love of God that is found in Jesus Christ. Does that mean that we won't face trouble in this life? Does that mean that, that this life is going to be easy going if we fear God, if we trust in him alone? No. No, in fact, oftentimes far from it. Verse 14, look at it with me. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, again, just listen to this, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, he says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. That beginning of verse 14, Peter uses an interesting grammatical construction. He, he phrases this in a way that offers some kind of an encouragement, this idea that even if, even if you face this kind of suffering for righteousness' sake, for following Jesus, you see, it's not that suffering for Jesus is unlikely. He's not trying to say that, listen, it's more than likely you're not going to suffer, but if you do, it's not the sense here. In fact, there's a good chance that it will happen. And that's what Peter has been saying to the church throughout this entire letter. If you're going to follow Jesus, you must be prepared to suffer for Jesus. Jesus Christ suffered for you and he presents to us the pattern, suffering then glory, suffering then glory. In the book of Acts, it says, through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul wrote to Titus saying, all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, listen, will be persecuted. Suffering, tribulation, and persecution is not to be viewed by the Christian as something that is abnormal. Instead, it is to be viewed as something that is expected. But here, what Peter is saying by the way he phrases this is that, listen, your suffering is more than likely not going to be the perpetual experience of your life. That's good news, right? Like no, most of us in here, maybe, maybe we've been mocked or reviled because of our faith. Maybe people have looked at us as if we're fools, but that, those kind of things are few and far between. But even better than that, what Peter is saying is this, even if it becomes something you must perpetually experience, it will not last forever. It's like what he said in chapter 1, verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You see, he, he says the same thing right here. Even if you should suffer, the sense is, listen, even if for a little while you have to suffer for Jesus Christ, guess what? You will be blessed. He pulls our vision back towards our future blessing, and he says, listen, if you can view your current temporary suffering in light of the eternal blessings that awaits you, it is going to seem like such a short period of time. It's like what Paul says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison." Listen, listen, one day, 
you're gonna be standing in eternity in the presence of blessings from the Lord Jesus Christ and everything you had to endure for the sake of Jesus Christ will feel like it was just the blink of an eye. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter five. He said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. There it is again, suffering for Jesus. Listen to what he says next. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You wanna know what Jesus says? Jesus, hey, this is nothing new. This is nothing new. And the prophets endured the same way you're called to endure. They looked towards the future blessings that awaited them. They pressed on. They kept pleasing the Lord with eagerness, zealously, because they knew what was in front of them. You see, your, your obedience to Jesus will be worth it in the end, church. It doesn't often feel like it in the moment, like a child who oftentimes you know, hears the call to obedience but is, is angered in the moment or frustrated in the moment, we can be like that in the Christian faith. But obedience will be worth it in the end. It leads us into the eternal blessings of God. And so Peter is saying, church, don't quit. Eagerly, zealously please Christ with your life. And you can only do that when you, listen to what he says next, have no fear of them nor be troubled. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, don't, don't let the world consume your thinking. Don't look at the world and the fear that they're trying to impose upon you. Don't fall prey to that. Peter knew the secret to pleasing Christ, to conquering the fear of man. And he offers to us really what is an ancient truth. Again, it's nothing new. Peter here actually a quote loosely from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 through 13. In Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 8, the Lord calls his true disciples not to share the fears of the people. In the immediate context of Isaiah chapter 11, they're, they're seeing um, the armed powers of the enemy in front of them. There is a vicious enemy that's confronted them and is challenging them, and they're beginning to wrestle with capitulation. They're wondering if they're going to be able to resist the enemy. They think the enemy is too strong. The oppression is too great. Maybe we should just give in and not trust the Lord. And in that context, in the face of a great enemy, the antidote to fear that is held out is an awareness of the glory of the Lord God himself. And that's essentially what Peter is saying to us. He's picking up on the same theme that Isaiah held out before the people of God, and he says this to them. He says, you want to know what the antidote is? Listen, don't fear them or be troubled by them instead, but, look at verse 15, in your heart honor Christ the Lord as holy. Literally, you can translate this phrase, but set apart Christ as Lord. Sanctify him in your heart as holy. View him and his glory as the most important thing in your life. Live to please him. Live to bring him glory. This is all about the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
and it speaks directly to our heart's devotion. One author commented on, on this phrase, and here's, here's what he said. It's so helpful. He said, setting him apart as Lord means bowing before him in adoration of praise. A praising heart is immune to the fear of other people. Fear of another sort takes possession of our hearts and minds. A fear that does not flee in terror, but draws near in awe and worship. You see, what, what Peter's saying is this. The key to killing fear is fear. Catch the irony of what he's holding out to us. He says, in effect, listen, lesser fears are conquered by greater fear. And your fear of the world should be nothing compared to your fear of God. And when your fear of God is greater than anything else, when you long to see his glory on full display in your life, listen, no fear of man will grip your life and grip your heart. Peter had heard Jesus say these words to him. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And Jesus in Matthew 10 followed those startling, solemn warnings with words of supreme assurance to his disciples. He reminded his disciples right after saying that, that their father in heaven has numbered every single hair of their heads. Nothing can happen to them outside the care of God. God cares for his children. You have nothing to fear if your soul is safe in Christ Jesus. So much fear in our lives is produced by trying to please man instead of pleasing God. To fear God is to long to please Him. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 9 says this, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Paul knew that whether he was facing life or death, there was one objective goal in his life, and it was simply this, I want to please God. I'm living for him and for his glory. You know, this is so helpful for us to think through because fear of man often divides our hearts. We cannot please everyone, and yet this is so often the objective of our lives. We want to keep everybody happy, everybody satisfied. We want everybody to think well of us. We don't want discomfort in our lives relationally, physically, emotionally, And we believe that trying to please everybody is the answer to resolving those tensions in our hearts. But the reality is, is when we try to please everyone, nobody ultimately is pleased and everybody loses, most of all ourselves. But you see, fear of God unites our heart with a single aim, a single purpose, to please Him. And so Peter says, have no fear. Your soul is safe. It doesn't matter what this world says about you. It doesn't even matter what they do to you. Your soul is safe, so eagerly please Christ. Second, he says this, have no fear. Your hope is secure, so boldly proclaim Christ. Your hope is absolutely secure. It is anchored because of the gospel. It's interesting that in the rest of verse 15, a very commonly referred to verse, 
It says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, listen to this, for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. He he chooses here, uh, Peter does, to use the word hope instead of faith. It's really interesting that he does that, but these really two words are already linked together in his epistle. In fact, in, in verse one, or excuse me, chapter one, verse 21, listen to what he says. He says, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Hope is a central word for Peter. Our whole ministry theme year is based around the idea that we have been given a living hope. It's found right out of First Peter chapter 1. This word is so central because it helps us remember what our future holds for us, the destiny that awaits all those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been given a future inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's kept in heaven for us. And this future hope becomes a present motivator to continue to endure in this life. You see, the future hope is constantly being held out as Peter from, by Peter. And this hope is intended to storm into the present moment of our lives, giving us courage and strength and boldness to endure and to press on for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This verse is often kind of pulled out of its immediate context and used as, a, as an apologetic staple Many of you have probably heard this used, you know, we've always, we got to be ready to defend the faith. And a lot of people look at this verse and, and say, see in this, this sense that all of us have to be ready to make a defense, you know, almost like we're in this courtroom setting and we've got to be able to take the stand for Jesus and be able to defend all of the ins and outs of the faith. Now, listen, listen, I don't want to minimize that. And that is for sure a helpful application of this verse. Every Christian should be working hard at their ability to articulate the gospel and to defend the faith. We, we ought to know what we believe and why we believe it. We ought to be prepared at any given moment if we're asked about our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to take the stand and declare with boldness and clarity the good news of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be able to grow, just so you know, in our ability to handle objections, push back from people. We ought to, yes, embrace the simplicity of the gospel, but we ought to understand the complex arguments that are often thrown at the gospel. And there are some of us that are going to be better at that than others, but every one of us should be striving to grow in our ability to defend the faith. But that's not exactly what Peter is talking about here. What Peter is talking about is living a life that so clearly follows Jesus, so powerfully resembles the life of Jesus, that the world will persecute us and oppress us and mock us for it. In others, listen, we'll stand out because of the way we're living our lives. We'll look radically different from the world, so much so that it will anger them and frustrate them. They'll mock us and ridicule us and revile us. And in that context, when we're being mocked and reviled and we respond to that revision, when we respond to that mocking like Jesus who who told us to bless those who persecute us, to pray for those who are our enemies, 
in those moments, when unbelievers recognize the way we are responding to these kind of challenges and difficulties, they will be able to see that our hope is in something beyond this world. They'll be able to see in a very potent way that our hope is in God rather than pleasant earthly circumstances. It is a shocking thing to the world. Do you realize when Christians are given the opportunity to abandon their faith, to end the suffering and persecution they're enduring, to be let go and freed from literal prison and torture, when they refuse to do that, Because their hope is not in their present circumstances, but is in the future blessing that is promised to them. The world looks at that as we are often, listen, staggered when we read stories of martyrs and those who are tortured for the faith. When we read those stories, we step back in awe and say, something is different here. This is unusual. Who believes this firmly in this? Who is willing to give up their life for this kind of belief? The answer, listen, the answer is, we are. Decades after Peter wrote his letter, he likely wrote in the mid-60s of A.D., there wasn't yet statewide persecution of Christians. There was social ostracization happening. There was difficulties for sure, isolated instances. But shortly after that, emperor worship became a dominant kind of enforced religion. And Christians began to experience greater and greater persecution. And in 110 AD, not that far removed from Peter, we have documents that tell us a little bit of the situation. There was a Roman governor named Pliny the Younger, and he wrote to the emperor at the time, and Emperor Trajan about Christians. Again, emperor worship was being enforced and Christians were refusing, but I want you to listen to what he wrote. This is his correspondence to the emperor. I'll just give you some snippets. He says this, I have followed this procedure in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians. I asked them if they were Christians. If they confessed, I asked a second and a third time, threatening with punishment. I ordered those who persevered to be led away, for I did not doubt that whatever it might be that they confessed, certainly their stubbornness and unshakable obstinacy ought to be punished. I thought I should release those who denied that they were or had been Christians. When following my lead, they first invoked the gods and offered incense and wine to your image which for this purpose I had ordered brought in with the images of the gods, and afterward, afterwards they cursed Christ. Listen to these words. This is coming from an outsider, from a pagan, who is observing the way Christians responded to this kind of treatment, and here's what he has heard from others. Listen, it is said that those who are really Christians cannot be forced to do any of these things. Church, the Christian hope has always been on display. Always. People have always been, been watching. So here's, here's the natural question when it comes to your hope and mine, what are you hoping in? Maybe even better, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, 
How do you make sure your hope is actually in the Lord, that it's secure, that it's stable, that it's unshakable and immovable, that if you were faced with the worst of the worst kind of circumstances, that it would be said of you, you are stubborn and obstinate, you refuse to abandon your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you refuse to bow the knee to any other God, you refuse to curse Jesus Christ, you will hold fast to him no matter what. Well, I can tell you this, your trials will show you this. The earthly trials you face here and now, whether it's for Jesus or whether it's simply suffering because we live in a fallen world. But the expectation here is that you've already been fostering this in your own life before the trial hits. So the trial is in many ways exposing the reality of your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here the call for us, just catch this, the call for us is to always be ready, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is already within us. And so my, my hope for my life and for your life is this, that we don't wait for trials to figure out whether or not that's where our hope actually is, but we're so grounded in our hope, so anchored in our hope, so secure in our hope that we are ready for anything the world or the devil has to throw at us. The phrase hope that is in you actually parallels um, the previous verse where it talks about in your heart, honor Christ. And here's why I, I pull that out, because I want you to see that Peter says the readiness is about your inner life. Your preparedness is, is all about your inner person, your heart. It's ultimately about your heart and relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible doesn't separate our inner life from our outer life. It doesn't separate the private from the public. The two things are deeply entwined. And so what Peter helps us see is the vital importance of the spiritual condition or preparedness of our hearts. A heart that is close to God, a heart that is set on honoring Christ as Lord, will always be ready to make a defense, to boldly proclaim Christ regardless of the cost. And I want to give you four just quick ways to foster this in your own life. Four quick ways to foster, foster this kind of preparedness. First, I want to encourage you to be willing. I think some of us right now just need to wrestle with that simple question. If I was faced with these circumstances, would I be willing to stand for Jesus Christ? Really, what I'm asking you about is your commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. And you know, when we embrace Jesus Christ, we bow the knee to him as Lord and Savior. But I think from time to time, we need to revisit that question. In fact, I would argue daily, the word of God says, we need to revisit that question. Are we willing to stand for Jesus Christ? You say, well, where do you get that idea? Well, Jesus Christ himself said, pick up your cross, what? Daily and follow me. Jesus is saying, every day you wake up, you need to look at the gospel, you need to look at the cross, you need to look at your life, you need to realize that Jesus died for you, and he reminds us to be willing each and every day by his grace and his power to be willing to die for him. I'm dying to my desires. I'm, I'm dying to my, my wishes, my hopes and dreams apart from him. And what I'm saying is, Jesus, I will follow you no matter what. I can promise you there is no better way to start your day than simply to roll out of bed and say, Lord, today, today I'm picking up my cross and I will follow you. Second, be walking. 
You gotta be willing, that's for sure. You have to commit to doing this, but secondly, you have to be walking with Jesus. This kind of response doesn't happen to those who are tripping along constantly in the Christian life or walking backwards in the Christian life. The Bible uses walking as a metaphor to describe the Christian life. It's about the relationship that we have that is intentional, it has direction, it has progress, it has movement. And I just wanna affirm for you what I know that most of you are already so aware of, that it is essential that you are daily not only committed and willing to follow Jesus Christ, but you are faithfully walking with him that you're daily in the word of God, that you're being exposed to the beauty and the glory of the gospel, that you're reading the word and you're taking it in, that you're digesting it for your own soul. That as you draw near to God, you are affirmed in what the word of God says that he is drawing near to you. Let me encourage you too, walking implies in the Bible, in Ephesians especially, um, and in Colossians, it implies this idea that we are putting off the old man and putting on the new man in Jesus Christ. That, that we are saying no to sin. We are repenting daily of sin. We are throwing off the clothes of the old sinful man and we are putting on the righteousness of Jesus Christ every single day. That's what it means to be faithfully walking with Christ. Let me give you a third way you can be fostering and cultivating this in your life. Be watching. Be watching. Jesus uses this phrase with his disciples on more than one occasion. He says to his disciples, watch and pray. Remember that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. I mean, who can't relate to that? And this idea of, of watching, I want, to, I want to help you see that this is so much a part of our prayer life. But the watching and praying are actually deeply connected. Do you realize that one of your greatest spiritual weapons is prayer itself? This is why at the end of the armor of God section, where Peter's given us the armor of God, he puts prayer at the end, and the way he uses prayer is as if prayer holds on all of the armor of God. It literally cinches it tight onto us. You see, without prayer, we are nothing. Prayer is the means by which we are vigilantly, vigilantly, listen, realizing that we can do nothing apart from him. We need his power. We need his presence. We need his light and his guidance and direction. We need his discernment and his insight. You see, prayer is where we throw ourselves at the mercy of God every day and say, God, help me. Be watching. And finally, do this, be waiting, be waiting. I, you know, I'm struck by this in my own life. I, I'll just confess to you that I, I, I so often, here's what I mean by waiting, be waiting for the coming of the Lord. Do you, do you, you know, we sing this, we sing these truths all the time. When we sing them, I just, just so you know, you know, sitting up at the front, I get the, the, the benefit and privilege of hearing the volume. I, you sit at the back, you don't hear much, okay? And that's fine, we got a lot of back row Baptists, that's okay, you're welcome, we love you. But sitting at the front, listen, this is, this is I hear the volume when we start singing about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that the volume in this room is ratcheted way up? 
I know, listen, I know that deep in our hearts, when we think about that, when we think about the, you know, Jesus is coming on the clouds, he is returning in glory, he is coming to judge the wicked and to restore the righteous, he is coming to set up his eternal kingdom, and he is coming soon. When we sing those words, it lights our hearts on fire, does it not? And yet, we can leave this place and all week long never remember that the Lord is going to come in glory. So many of the parables that Jesus teaches and, and uses, do you realize how many, just read, the, read through the gospels, it's amazing how many of the parables are all about waiting for the king to return. The king is going to stay awake, don't fall asleep, be prepared, be ready. And I just, I just want you to know, this is hard for me. I get so distracted by the world. You know, I think about the here and now as much as you do. And I need my heart to be reminded, like Paul says, right? He says, come, Lord Jesus, come. I need that to be a daily cry of my heart, and so do you. Because when we believe Jesus is returning, listen, we will live differently for him. Your hope is secure. So boldly proclaim Christ. Be ready to give an answer. But I want you to notice, listen, the boldness is not without humility. Boldness does not mean harsh and brash. It doesn't mean belligerent. It doesn't mean offensive in the way we handle ourselves. Notice what he says here. With gentleness and respect. There is to be a... a Demeanor in Christians that does not undercut the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not to be rude and arrogant and prideful in what we convey about the gospel, how we defend the hope that is within us. It is to be gentle and sensitive. It is to be respectful because, listen, because our hope is secure, we're not fighting people, right, to, to stay alive. We know that our hope is secure. Can I just remind you, church, listen, when we articulate our faith to others, when we are being forced or put on the stand, so to speak, to defend ourselves, we're not simply trying to win, trying to win arguments. We're trying to win souls. We're desperately, I hope, longing, listen, not just to be right, not to throw it in people's face that you're wrong, I'm right, we're desiring them to come to the same saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that we have come to. And the call here is to boldly proclaim souls, realizing, listen, that we need to be cautious about the way we do it, but church, listen, we must do it. Third and finally, have no fear because your life is seen. So faithfully pursue Christ. He rounds the corner here with these verses and he, he says this in verse 16, having a good conscience so that, here's the reason, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. He's in one sense reiterating what he's already communicated to us before. Having a good conscience here is, again, pointing us to our life with God. 
A good conscience is, is about how we live in relationship to God, in obedience to Him, seeking to please Him, pursuing Him above all things. To have a good conscience doesn't mean that you have no sin. It means that you live by faith, that you walk in repentance and confession of sin, but that you, you live by faith in the Son of God who paid the debt for your sins, who washed you white as snow, who pours out His grace and mercy upon you. Having a good conscience means you live in God's presence in all you do. It means in, in one sense, listen, that you have a God consciousness about you. That you are training yourself to live all of your life as if all of your life is ultimately seen and known by Him, because it is. And I can tell you this, church, that if you live your life like that, as if all of your life is seen by God, then I promise you all the world will see and take note of how you're living. See, when you live as though your life is seen by God, your life will inevitably be seen by others. They will see that you look different from them, that you respond in ways that they don't, that you speak in ways that they don't, that you won't do things that they do, you won't act in ways that they act, that you don't respond, especially when ridiculed and reviled the way that they would, you don't fight back, you endure. Your demeanor and disposition have a, a confidence and a conviction that is unfamiliar to them. It's curious and strange, and it begs questions from them. It doesn't make worldly sense. And you see, God is calling us to look different because of the hope that is within us. I sat yesterday afternoon in a, a hospital room at Princess Margaret Hospital. I sat with Paul and Jean Sutherland. Many of you know them. They're members here at our church. They've been here for a long time. Jean has been uh, battling cancer for the better part of a year now, and she is moments away from seeing Jesus face to face. I sat in the hospital room, and I, I talked to Paul about how people face these kinds of things without hope in Jesus Christ, without knowing that once death hits, that they will be ushered into the presence of God's blessing. I sat with them and I read, I read from 1 Peter, and I read these words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We sat and talked about the hope 
that we have in Jesus Christ, the faith of Jean and the knowledge and, the, listen, the sure confidence that as breath slips away from her physical body, she will awake in the presence of her Savior. We talked about Psalm 90, verse 12, and you know, when you're staring death in the face, it, it helps you remember the importance of life. Psalm 90, verse 12, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Church, isn't it sad when the church of Jesus Christ fails to do this and as a result looks no different from the world that we're supposed to be reaching? Isn't it sad that we're so consumed with this world that we're no good to the world? I came across this quote um, this week. David Gibson says these words. I'll put it on the screen. He says, people who follow Jesus often lose sight of the world to come. We become resident Christians rather than nomadic Christians. We become fully integrated into this world rather than viewing ourselves as passing through. And we do this by living as if our greatest treasures are here and now. We strive and strain for the same kind of gain as everyone else around us. Church, does our living hold out the hope that we have found in Jesus Christ? Or does it expose the hope that we've actually placed in the world? And look at what's at stake here. That those, he says, who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Don't you see? He's talking about the eternal significance of the life you lived and the gospel you proclaim. So what does, what does it mean that some will be put to shame? In, in what sense will they be put to shame? Listen, the hope, the hope is this, that they are put to shame here and now because of their behavior and their own sin. You know, like, like the Roman soldier who stood by the cross when Jesus was crucified and was able to say, surely this man is the Son of God. They see their sin. This is the hope that our lives and the way we speak and communicate the gospel, people see their lives so clearly. They see their sin and they see how we respond and the hope that we have and they look at us and they say, I need what you have. I want what you have. How do I get what you have? So that they might, in their shame, turn and repent and find grace. Grace, church. You see, pursuing Christ faithfully, even and especially through ridicule and persecution, is often used by God to bring about the salvation of others. Our life can be a fragrant aroma of life to life to many. But there is a second and probably more dominant emphasis in Peter's mind as he writes these words that they will be put to shame. That even, listen, if it doesn't lead to salvation here and now for some, it will lead to vindication of the righteous. 
Do you realize that in the same confidence you have that, oh, I hope that if you're in Christ Jesus, that you know if breath was taken from your body at this moment, you would awake in the presence of your Savior and gaze upon his glory and beauty with rejoicing because he will say, enter into the joy of your master. Do you realize that some people, some people, listen, will have breath taken from their body and they will wake up and stand before Jesus as judge and in that moment, they will be put to shame because they have rejected him. The eternal significance of what we're doing here, church, cannot be minimized. And our lives can be an aroma of death to death for many. And we wish that on no one. We long for all to come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we, we hold out hope in this church that while we are being persecuted, while we are called to endure suffering for the sake of Jesus, our hope is not in vain. Amen? Our hope is not in vain. The world may shame us for what we believe, but when we stand before Jesus, we will not be put to shame. Listen to what Romans 5 says. It says this, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Chapter 9, verse 33 says, As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Romans 10, 11 says, For the scriptures says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Let me just give you one more. Psalm 34, the very psalm that is referenced by Peter here, Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. It is better to suffer for pursuing Christ, listen, than to suffer for pursuing sin. This kind of suffering is the will of God, Peter says. Suffering than joy. Suffering than joy. He not only sees it, God sees it, listen, He's sovereign over it. If it is God's will that you suffer for Jesus temporarily, church, listen to this. Remember that it is far better than suffering without Jesus for eternity. And in our suffering, we need to be reminded that God is good and God is doing good both in our lives and through our lives. Suffering makes us more like Jesus. We're being refined and strengthened in our faith. It makes us cling to Jesus. It releases our grip from the lesser joys of the world and helps us hold tightly onto the greater joy that's found in Jesus. It helps us display Jesus, letting our light shine before others so that they may see our good deeds and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Peter knew what it was to fear man. At the most critical moment of his life, he denied Jesus three times, but God in his grace forgave Peter and restored Peter and called Peter to live differently. You see, Peter also knew what it was to live a fearless kind of Christianity. If you want evidence of this, just look at the book of Acts, specifically chapter five, where Peter filled with the spirit of God as an apostle of the risen Lord. He's no longer huddled by a fire in the outer courtyard. Now he is the accused, and he stands before the same tribunal that had examined Jesus Christ his Savior. He who had feared to confront a maidservant now confronts the high court. He accuses them of crucifying Jesus, and he refuses their order to be silent. Instead, he fearlessly declares, we must obey God rather than men. Church, 
Loved ones, like Peter, may we have no fear greater than the fear of God. Amen? Father, help us. Lord, we are needy and desperate. Father, we want to fear you above all else. God, not not cowering in fear, not scared and in terror of you, but God, in awe and adoration of you. We want to fear, Lord, that is driven by an understanding of your great love for us. You have loved us enough, Lord, to save us from your own wrath, from the penalty of our sins that you've saved us unto yourself to live no longer in our sin, but to live in the freedom that is offered to you by your spirit. And God, we pray that you would help us as your church to be a faithful, fearless testimony of the power and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, would you take us, your people, make us more like Jesus Christ, strengthen our resolve, Fill us with your spirit, O God, and use us as your mouthpiece here and now. We pray this for the glory and honor of the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.